Oh, guys, this episode's going to be late. And let's not point fingers, but we all know whose fault it is. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, someone is pointing fingers. <laughs> Usually we like to get these out on Friday. I don't know when this is coming out, but it means I'm done editing it. But it's not Friday, so we're sorry about that. Well, I I also curse God. And usually you like to take weekends off, right, Pills? What's that? You usually like to take weekends off, Pills. That's why you like to edit on Fridays and then and then be done for the weekend. I do take Saturdays off. I'm not able to take weekends off. Yeah, I usually take Sunday off. Saturday is also typically what I call the hungover work day. So it's usually where I prepare my lectures <laughs> for the week. All right, all right. We all take a chill pill and just get to moral argumentation moral reasoning for there is nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so and to me denmark is a prison oh yeah little hamlet there to get us started beautiful yep. well i feel like we're gonna split along lib lines again because we have to talk about morality which is who picked this topic <laughs> i think matt first suggested it right I don't think so, no. That sounds I, like I that. actually remember saying I didn't want to talk about metaethics. Oh, no. This <laughs> was because Matt posted on Twitter oh, yeah. that, oh. Marx, that Marx was making a moral argument, and that was my first Twitter argument. I said he had implicit moral arguments. There's a difference. Well, an implicit oh, yeah. argument, is that an argument, or is it just a bad argument? It's a bad argument, which is why I said it should be explicated. If the premise exactly. is implied, then it's not actually a premise. So let's, 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 maybe that's a good place to start. Why don't we like, so let's get back to that original tweet, Matt. What was, what's the, what's your claim about Marx? Wait, first let me roll the music. Okay. Okay. It's, it's been rolled. Sweet music. Sweet music. (laughs) Insert here. (laughs) Insert here. It's that, I was... I express my frustration at the fact that some critical theorists tend to be skeptical uh, of any kind of argument that's framed as a moral argument, right? Uh, they tend to either like to engage in what's broadly called crash- trashing, which is broadly critical activity, uh, or they think that the, you know, the only kind of argument that you should make is descriptive. How would you define a moral argument, just to get us started? So, like, what, what is it that you think they're, they're avoiding? Well, moral ju- uh, like a moral judgment uh, just involves... Why are you talking about us like we're not here? I don't, well, I just thought I just thought that we would I would get us started. We we define our terms like a good analytic philosopher would. Ew! I actually don't know what side uh, Eric's on on this debate. Oh boy! I hope he's on my side because he re- yeah. has read Nietzsche and like the libs. So, but let's <laughs> but 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 I think it's important to say like so. What is what would be like a moral judgment or a moral claim? Like to say something is like that some state of affairs is like good or not good or condemnable. Yeah, I think it's just an evaluative judgment about what one, one ought to do. Right? Uh, right, in the kind of Humean sense, right? Uh, and what one ought to do uh, is obviously contentious, and it really depends upon the moral theory that you think is correct, right? Whether you're a consequentialist, a virtue ethicist, or a deontologist. Right? What makes that a Humean question? He said there is no ought. Well, no, he said that ought questions are different than is questions. So that we know what we're talking about, that is the, it's called the naturalist fallacy, right? Or yeah. the Humean guillotine, I prefer. Yeah, I think that one's more fun. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a common refrain in all of this is that you can't reason to what we ought to do from what is. You can't reason ought from is. That's yeah. a common refrain in this, which 
I'm not trained in the analytic tradition, so I don't know, but I did watch The Good Place when Chidi <laughs> explained that there are three kinds of ethics. There's Aristotelian virtue ethics, there's deontology, which is the duty stuff, and then there's consequentialism. Con, yeah. Those are the three great branches. Some people like to add nihilism as a fourth, which is more like a lack of <laughs> morality <laughs> or a lack of belief in the objective reality of any kind of moral system. That's nihilism. Just, just or, be or, modestly. Or, 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 I, I, yeah. Sorry, just to be modestly multicultural. People have pointed out that these three traditions do map on to uh, non-European traditions as well. So, for instance, there's a very rich field of Confucian uh, virtue ethics right now, uh, focusing on Ren rather than eudaimonia. Um, then there's also, you know, other deontological traditions that you can see. Um, you know, people have pointed out that, you know, for instance, uh, various forms of Sunni Islam uh, tends to take a very rule-oriented form, pretty consistent with deontology. Uh, and then there's also things like Chinese legalism that maps onto various kinds of consequentialism, right? Uh, so whether or not these categories are universally applicable, you know, virtue ethics, consequentialism, deontology, uh, it does seem that a lot of moral systems at least seem to take on elements of these forms. Right? There's also a feminist ethics, which I think is, uh, you could fit it into consequentialism. Yeah. Although it tends to be generally critical of universalist ethics. Well, there's there's lots of different kinds of of, of, of feminism, but yeah, I mean p potentially. I think uh, I was gonna say uh, to like Eric's definition of sort of the the nihilism as maybe the fourth branch, and I wonder if that's what falls into uh, maybe what you were pointing at, Matt, with like sort of the more critical. Because I think like, do you think the critical approaches like map onto nihilism somehow? Because in their refusal to actually like state a moral claim. I don't personally think they do, right? I mean, if you look at most forms of critical theory, the general focus tends to be on one of two things, right? Emancipation or equality, or emancipation and equality, egaliberté, as it's yeah. called, right? Uh, and I completely endorse, <laughs> you know, these aspirations, since I believe in liberty and equality. But it is worth noting that prioritizing, though, those does involve a kind of normative evaluation, right? Uh, we could just as easily say that, well... People shouldn't be free and people shouldn't be equal and we shouldn't have democracy and everyone should be a slave, right? Uh, I would disagree with that moral judgment, but it is, uh, you know, a legitimate moral claim to make. But that's not the moral claim that you make from the perspective of critical theory. Well, that, that, I know, but what I'm saying is usually implicit within various forms of critical theory. And this relates back to the Kantian idea of critique, right, from which this all originated, uh, is this notion that what we should prioritize is various kinds of freedom or emancipation or even radical emancipation to use my preferred words and then this is usually associated with some notion that emancipation needs to take the form uh needs to take an egalitarian form right that somebody's voice isn't being heard or institutions are reflecting someone or right some now. difference is not being represented but the reason exactly. for that is not a moral argument from a yeah, left no, it's, no, it's, critical it's, theory it's, it's, perspective it's, here i'll, but, I'll offer well, my on, counter let position me just say but let me just say something really quickly. Can I just say one thing really quickly? Because I think it's important to clarify what I think the Matt's Matt and probably my position is too, is that like, I think the claim is more that actually underlying the, the critical traditions and what gets to his original tweet is that there's actually a crypto normativity here. Yeah. So it's not so much that they're actually making a moral claim, it's that they actually are depending on one, but are unwilling to say it. So therefore yeah. they're crypto normative, not exactly. actually holding to their, yeah. And I think Nietzsche would say the same thing, actually. Okay. No, that's not true. Yes, it would. If they, if they do, that's incidental. The argument actually is an argument for self-interest. That's saying if you're a, a parole, then you don't need to accept the state of affairs because there are more paroles than bougies. 
That's not I mean, a moral that, argument. That's a claim to self-interest that says you can change the world so that it better reflects your will rather than the will of the ruling class. Okay. But if, yeah. that's an, if that is an injunction, right? If that's just a descriptive statement like you can change the world, then there would really be no point in engaging in critical theory, generally speaking, right? Uh, I mean, the kind of expectation is that, going back to Kant, once you recognize that you are capable of changing the world, you will change the world, and that's a beneficial thing, right? Yeah, but the- otherwise, you know, you end up with somebody who's just saying like, well, it's theoretically the proles could revolt, but that's not a good thing, and we shouldn't do it. In which case, you might ask, why the hell would you write this book in the first place? This is why I'm saying there's not a moral premise. I think generally leftist people do are leftists because of some sympathy or empathy or whatever the right word is, because they think that uh, a better world for them is also a better world for most people. But the argument for a leftist politic or a libertary politic is not that everyone should be equal. It's that it's going to be better for the people that are now being downtrodden, if they okay, were to that, change the world. That's not a moral, there's no moral that premise. That is absolutely a moral claim. It's a claim that what we should do is try to better those who aren't benefiting from the system right now. But that's a, the argument is for power. It's not. Yeah, it's, about, it's about power, but it's also about the importance of actually redistributing power relations or reorganizing power relations that those who have no power right now will have it in the future. Right, that's that's a, wait, wait, wait. Moral it's first and foremost a descriptive enterprise, not a prescriptive enterprise, right? To describe capitalism, and capitalism has a certain inherent morality. Capitalism itself, as a mode of production and as something that produces, you know, relations of production and ideological things, it has a certain way of discriminating between right and wrong. And today we're always faced with the idea that what is right is to encourage, say, policies that encourage economic growth, that encourage self-interest, that de-emphasize government intervention. Like capitalism, certain versions of it, have these sort of moral principles built into it. And part of critical theory is, and the reaction, I heard you guys talking about universalism before we started recording. And you know, it's it's not a popular position anymore, but it is there that morality is relative. It's culturally relative. It's historically relative. There are no – the reason that – like I'm a believer in, in a limited form of universality too, but I also believe that our sense of right and wrong radically changes from even from one generation to the next, never mind one mode of production to the next. I think it's worth untangling because it seems like Pills is saying – that like it's actually an injunction about like that people will follow their self-interest or if they're if they become aware if they get the proper information about their class position is it that they should because if you're saying that they people should follow their self-interest that's a moral claim that's a normative claim about should but then is there just like more of a causal almost like a causal claim that once people realize their self-interest they will act in a certain way because yeah. that, like that's the only way to make it a purely descriptive statement is if you're just saying yeah. Well, I take that to be the Marxist position certainly that there's a contradiction between what's being offered and between how the world is. So we just have to naturally expect that the world will change to resolve that contradiction. So I think it is descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay. So oh, you, have to, you have to see. I mean, you have to very carefully avoid saying "should follow yourself." No, I, I don't think yeah, Marx exactly. is and saying "should." Though that. he's saying people will. That's how okay. it has happened and will continue to happen. Okay. Okay. But okay, 
this is where it becomes problematic in a number of different ways, right? You're absolutely right that Marx presents himself in a certain sense as being purely a descript uh, offering a descriptive account of how it is that emerging capitalist society operates, right? And then there's this teleological vision of history of where at the end, communism is going to arrive, human beings self-consciously create their own history for the first time, uh, and this is inevitably going to happen, and we should just accept it, right? Uh, now, as it goes, that can be just cast in purely descriptive terms, but it's not cast in purely descriptive terms because Marx tends to argue that this is going to be a beneficial development, right? And making that kind of evaluation is fundamentally normative. And if you want, I can give a good counterexample. Uh, the uh, libertarian economist Arthur Schupenter, uh, who wrote a very good book called Capitalism, Democracy, uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, sorry, uh, actually agreed with Marx. He said that I believe socialism is inevitably going to come. Uh, he's absolutely right about this dialectic, but this is going to be a catastrophe, right? It's going to mean the end of all innovation. It's something we should really not look forward to. Uh, and that's also a moral claim, right? So whether or not you read this descriptive story that Marx is uh, giving and you agree with him that this is something we should applaud or whether you agree with Schupenter and you think this is something we should be repelled by, you have to make moral judgments about that. I don't know. I think what you're, you're, you're putting two things together here. You're saying like that guy would say that this is going to lead to this. And then there's a whole other moral claim built into that saying that this would be bad. Because that's what it is. That's or the Mark's moral claim is separate from the this will happen claim to the this would be bad yeah, claim. So he's not like that's not a moral argument in itself. There's maybe if he believes it's a bad thing, he's making an implicit value judgment. But that's yeah. not a moral argument. If I say if I throw this ball at this window, this window will break. Whether or not I think it's a bad thing to <laughs> vandalize somebody's property, I'm not making a fucking moral yeah, claim but, but there. Marx's I'm just saying an, what would happen. And the guy's probably wrong because most critics of Marx who yeah, take Marx a conservative direction are just okay, wrong. Okay, we're going to have yeah, to but, bring yeah, in well, the rules I'm, of I'm debate here if people keep interrupting each other. <laughs> you should not interrupt. But sorry, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Thou shalt no, not. <laughs> but this is the point that I'm trying to make, right? If you read Marx's work carefully, it's very clear that he's evaluating this as a beneficent development, right? In a very Hegelian fashion, because ultimately the story of history is the story of human emancipation and the rival at self-consciousness. Uh, and this should all be applauded as a positive development, right? The point that I'm trying to get at with Schopenhauer is that you're exactly right, you know? You can tell the same descriptive story about capitalism, right? That it's inevitably going to be extremely productive for a while, then it's going to fall and decline. Uh, but whether or not you see that as a positive or a negative thing is really dependent upon your normative evaluation. But, but those are two separate Those are two separate arguments being made then. Okay, yeah, but, yeah, but let me finish. Follow your own rules, okay? Because uh, if you read you know, his kind of accounts, and particularly- You can Angles, go your own let me, Okay, mm -hmm. let me finish my point. <laughs> You know, and if you read his kind of arguments, for instance, about how it is that communism is going to be, as he puts it in the manner, oh, sorry, in the Das Kapital, a far higher form of society, right? Talking about a higher form of society is ultimately a moral judgment, right? It's something that's better. It's something that's beneficial. It's buttressed by a moral judgment. It's not in itself a moral judgment. I, I think it's absolutely, yeah, well, I think that, you know. When somebody writes a manifesto, you can assume that they are valuing the things they're saying in a positive way, but they're not making necessarily moral yeah. claims. You can make moral claims to back things up, like capitalism 
is the right way to live because it's good to follow your self-interest. And that's how democracies work. If everybody represents themselves in a democracy, then it'll function correctly. And functioning correctly is good. The moral, you have to separate the moral argument from these claims and predictions and willbies and wouldbies. Yeah, I think you can, but I would actually rather- They're built in there, but they're like buttresses on a cathedral. They're not the structure itself. They're just holding it up a little bit. Okay, but that's exactly what I'm saying. I absolutely agree that Marx is making, telling a descriptive story here that's buttressed by these kind of normative claims. But it's buttressed by the claim that capitalism is going to undergo increasing exploitation of the working class. And that's the bad thing. Yeah, well, I think there's a huge problem there since there are normative uh, judgments baked into his uh, account of labor also. But we'll put that aside for now. I think, you know, that I would much rather he actually be, he was explicit about the kind of normative evaluations that you say serve as a buttress so we could actually deliberate upon them and have some clarity on them because that's not the way things are uh, as the text stands right now, right? Uh, It's rather confusing where it is that he's making normative evaluations and when he's just telling a story. uh, And I would rather be there be some methodological clarity on these points because I actually agree with him about both his uh, moral claim and about a lot of his descriptive claims, right? I just want some, to use Victor's preferred term, analytical clarity on these issues. I like analytical clarity. I don't find those two things confusing at all because it's easy to separate in my mind. But Victor, what do you think? Well, you can you can separate those things, but I think like the real objection here is, you know, there's a de- we're debating here like what what was what's actually in the text of Marx, but then there's like a separate question about like how has critical theory been taken up since Marx. And I think, I mean, it is debatable. I've been teaching Marx recently uh, to, in, in my tutorial. And like, you know, obviously there's a difference between early and late Marx. I think early Marx clearly has some, seems much more normative and is making a lot of value judgments about like human human self-actualization and well-being. And um, but, but in any case, but like, I think what really I'm interested in is the way like the critical attitude in theory, the way it's taken up to sort of condemn certain states of affairs Um as being somehow deleterious to something, some human that like that is just to pretend that that's not filled with normative content uh, just seems ridiculous to me. Like like that's clearly so steeped in claims about certain states of affairs being better than others. But then there's a refusal to like unpack what that means, because then you're going to end up being some analytical lib or something. And it's like, no, no, like there's a there's a value to like unpacking what those what those claims. What are we what's what's behind those moral like judgments and and evaluations of the states of affairs being good or bad. And like, I think that's a worthwhile project. Yeah. And I'll give you an example from Foucault, right? Just to shift gears a little bit, right? Uh, if you just want to take Foucault as a descriptive social scientist, I could read Discipline and Punish and say that this is a very interesting a- account of society. Uh, and I might even make a moral judgment if I was psychotic that this sounds great. This is the kind of society that we should have. You know what I mean? We should have a disciplinary society. The fact that, you know, the book is clearly a critique of this uh, implies that we shouldn't be satisfied with this state of affairs or that there's something normatively wrong with the emergence of a disciplinary society. Uh, and that's where the book gets some of its power from. And I would much rather that, that the normative basis of this critique be explicated as it ultimately was near the end of his life, where he starts talking about this Nietzschean ethics of self-creation that he tends to prefer, rather than it just being baked in uh, to the analysis or serving as a buttress, as Eric would say, right? Just because I think things become clearer then and we can actually understand why it is that we should dislike the society, not just get a very rich and interesting descriptive account of how it is that the society works. 
I mean, I have two ways of talking about this. First of all, something like like when you talk about normative claims, right? When people make normative claims, part of the critical theory tradition is really focused on debunking like what normativity is yeah. and what it means. And so when you have like Marx talks about the difference between use value and exchange value, right? Like the use value is natural, it's part of the material of the commodity and the exchange value obtains over and above it. Exchange value is purely metaphysical. And what Derrida points out is actually use value is just as metaphysical. He's pointing out the ways that through normativity, through these ideas about what we think the way the world just is, is actually how metaphysical claims sneak into our reasoning. And so when Marx just puts this sort of simple value on the use value of a product, he's actually allowing normative claims, metaphysical claims to sneak into his work, uncritical, unexamined. So that's why there's so much suspicion. That I mean, that's one example of why there's so much suspicion about normative claims. And the second thing, let me just, this one's quicker, is that normativity goes way beyond ethics. You're talking about normativity like it's all about morality, but normativity is also built into science. Normativity is built into aesthetics. Normativity is built into logic. Normativity is built into everything, right? Like aesthetics. What is good and what is bad? What kinds of art should we make? What kinds of art shouldn't we make? Logic, how to reason, how we should reason, how we shouldn't reason. Science, what is the best method? How should we proceed about investigating our claims we make about the world? How do we experiment in order to confirm that our beliefs are true or false? Normativity is in everything. It's not limited to morality. It's not some secret thing that critical theorists are denying exist or aren't in their work. It's everywhere. And usually we just say it's metaphysical because we're trying to be critical of it. We're saying metaphysical claims about the way the world really is, is actually ideology. And you have to be careful when you're making these sorts of arguments. So those are the two things, right? QED, motherfucker. Motherfucker. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to make a long-winded point, but the one reason that I can see on its face is the most obvious that a critical theorist would not want to use morally normative claims would be that uh, reorganization of power is bad for the powerful. So they're not going to agree with your normative argument. So they're not going to make claims that can be just disputed but by someone else saying, no, I don't want that. They're going to say, we can find liberation for more people by, you know, overthrowing the ruling class or whatever the, whatever the critical theory happens to be. In the Foucault case, it would, you know, it would, it would be strategic in Foucault's case as well to not make normative value judgments. Okay, but like, first off, I want to say I completely agree with everything that Eric said. The reason I'm focusing on morality is that, and actually I think this speaks to all the point that we're making, is that that's just one kind of normative judgment that's baked in uh, to a lot of these apparently descriptive accounts. Uh, if you really wanted to be far more robust about it, there's all kinds of other ways that we can conceive of normativity that's also typically baked into what seem like purely descriptive accounts uh, and that we could also unpack in a Derridian fashion, right? And one of the reasons I like somebody like Derrida, at least in this point, is he was actually cognizant enough about this uh, to actually make clear what a lot of his own uh, 
ethical and normative preferences were, particularly in the late period, right? So if anything, he's engaging in the kind of critical theorizing I like, where at the end, he's at least saying, look, I have a perspective. This is what I think we should do in a number of different fields. Uh, and I'm going to be transparent about that, at least as transparent as Derrida uh, ever gets, right? Uh, and the other thing I want to say is that I think one of the reasons why critical theorists don't tend to make normative claims explicitly is in part because they think that this is going to wind up becoming ideologically overdetermined and captured by the powerful. Uh, and they also tend to have this democratic sense that it's not for me to kind of lay out a blueprint for you. Uh, this should be determined by those who liberate themselves from power using my description as a guide. Uh, and then they'll conceive of and construct new forms of life on that basis, right? Uh, but it's worth noting that even the word you use is liberation, right? Uh, liberation is very much a kind of moral notion, right? That it's important to be liberated, right? That what we want is liberated subjectivities, right? Uh, and what frustrates me sometimes about this work is unlike Derrida, who at least was open about this, many of the people don't go that far uh, and actually explain why it is that we should prioritize something like liberation, right? It's just almost taken for granted that liberation is a good thing. But you're looking for a universalist claim in that sense then, because like why we should do something, well, because maybe, maybe because it's relevant right now, maybe 50 years ago, we shouldn't have done that, but now it's something that we should do. No, I would actually say that the thing about critical theory is it's very fundamentally a universalistic at its very core, because most critical theorists tend to implicitly regard liberation as a good thing or liberté, right? Uh, and there's a long tradition of this going back to Hegel and Kant, right? Uh, and one of the reasons why I would actually like that to be made explicit is because then we can have a conversation about it and actually try to explain why it is that we think liberty and equality are important. Because it's not obvious that they are, right? Uh, if I really wanted to be fully Nietzschean, I could sit there and say that, why should we care about liberty, right? Why can should I, we can care I add about something next? Everyone? Yeah, go ahead. If it's directly on this point, it's directly on this point, because okay. uh, I just want to add something to what Matt said, which is, I think another part of it, which is like where I, I've become sort of fixated lately on this idea of a critical theorist being crypto normativist is because I think to me, like the, the issue that I'm seeing is I think there's really an attachment in the critical theory tradition, uh, an attachment to, to almost being culturally defined by their opposition to some sort of like like, I don't know if Western or like rationalist or like thickly metaphysical commitments. Like, I think there's a cultural attachment to being opposed to that. Thickly metaphysical sounds like a dildo, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's, so there, whatever. There's an, sorry, I think I there's a, there. stay on track, stay on track. Do you yeah. shop for dildos often that have like multi-syllabic titles? Yeah, what the hell are you talking about, man? What the fuck? I don't know. That kind of came out of left field, bro. I don't know what's going on there. He's probably probably thinking of... He's looking at a browser window. All right. (laughs) Well, what I'm trying to say here is that I think that in the critical theory tradition, there's a a cultural attachment, right, to being opposed to um, Western rationalism or, like, kind of this universalistic language. So I guess, like, the thing that I'm really interested in pointing to is... Like, is there actually good reason for that anymore? Like, I'm not, I'm, I don't feel like I'm less convinced by the reasons for that. And I guess I kind of want to point out and like maybe kind of provoke people to think like, is this really more of just like a cultural, like almost rhetorical thing? Because I agree with Matt that I actually think that there's a lot of similarity. It's almost like they want to make the existing sort of like Western theory to be almost like some Lockean hubris when like really I think you look at the tradition there's lots of people like John Stromill who like start from the point of view of like the the fallibility of the human being and that we're going to be wrong all the time and everything's going to be provisional and you know and into like like 
And I think even today in analytic philosophy, like there's really like, it's not fixated on some kind of like weird, cringy, like, you know, disclosing the absolute universal truth to anything. It's like very much discourses about the way in which we're fallible, the way in which like our, our, our reasoning, our understanding of the world is incomplete, constantly provisional. So I don't know. That's just my, my added point. I asked if that was directly on point because I had a response to Matt that okay. I think will, and I don't know where you ended up. You ended up oh, at, well, I mean, at like the 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 truth function in language, I guess, somewhere around there. I'm sorry, my dildo comment threw you off track, Victor, but <laughs> it had to get out there then or it wouldn't have resonated. I'm sorry. <laughs> God damn I, you. I ruined it all. No, you fucking dildo ruined discourse. my point, you son of a bitch. I thought we were on the same side. <laughs> we usually don't get into the weeds and pick at each other very specifically, but I think we can hear because I can hear both sides of the argument. Um, I think maybe I'm wrong, but Matt, I don't think you said a long time ago before dildos, before browsers and before we got to the truth <laughs> function in language that liberation is a moral good. And I don't see it that way at all. I think you can make a very I didn't material. I say it was a moral good. I said we have to think of it in moral terms. It may be moral good or it may not be, right? But that's it's implicitly claimed to be so in these traditions. Yeah, that's right. The so I don't think it is. I think liberation in terms of will, you can give a very materialist analysis to this in saying that being able to see your will enacted in the world, and this is going to sound very Nietzschean because it is. I've been reading a lot of Nietzsche this week as it happens, but to see your will enacted in the world and to have power, that's not a moral claim at all. It's more a claim to what the capacity of your action is to change the circumstances around you. And in that sense, liberation has nothing to do with goodness. Liberation is something that I want. And by extension, I can say that I think that would be morally better for a, a society to endorse that. But the first claim in itself is a material one. Okay, sure. I, I mean, I would agree with that in the sense that before it is that we talk about whether or not freedom is valuable, we'd have to define what we mean by freedom, right? Uh, and I think that's a very interesting philosophical task, and I think Nietzsche does a spectacular job of it, amongst others, right? What I'm just attacking, or not nearly attacking, is just observing, is that most critical theorists don't even really go that far, right? And this is one of the problems I had with Foucault, right? Uh, it's only near the end of his life where Foucault even starts to talk about what kind of freedom he wants and why, right? Uh, usually the kind of supposition in a lot of these critical theoretical traditions is just that engaging in these kinds of enterprises will allow people to be more free, kind of, in some sense, that's never really articulated. Uh, and the implicit expectation is that this is a good thing, right? Uh, and I agree that it is a good thing. I would just like more explication as to why. Uh, and I just like to follow up, and I think Eric might like this point, actually. Uh, I actually think that being explicit about these kinds of motivations and these normative judgments, normative in the capital N sense, right? Big N normativity, not just morality, right? is actually a very critical enterprise because it forces you to reflect upon your own presuppositions on this point. And I'll give an anecdote that Derek Parfit points out when um, Derek Parfit is a moral philosopher at Oxford. He died now. He wrote a three-volume book called On What Matters that's interesting. Uh, but he says he was engaging with a neoliberal economist, right? And the neoliberal economist was there with all these raps describing the world. And he said, I've made no judgments one way or another uh, about the rightness or wrongness of this. Uh, this is the policy we should enact. Uh, and Parfit said, you actually have made a judgment. 
Uh, your judgment is that we should want the economy to grow and not shrink. And the economist kind of paused and was like, well, that's just silly. Like, nobody would ever possibly question that, right? Uh, but it is, you know, a judgment that he's making, right? He's making a judgment that a certain kind of economic organization is preferable because it increases GDP growth. And this is the kind of policy we should enact on that basis. Uh, and Parfit's kind of point is that the critical attitude is to actually bring to the fore what's morally contentious here and force you to explain yourself uh, on those terms. Right? So let me ask a question then. Is demanding that critical theorists make their moral claims explicit to use their own language, is that not an authoritarian gesture? Are you demanding that I put the moral reasons behind what I do into propositional language that can be inserted into some kind of hegemonic discourse and evaluated according to analytic philosophical rules, which translation like white men in Oxford, isn't that just an authoritarian <laughs> gesture no, that you're asking me? This. Like if I'm, if I'm an oppressed individual and part of a marginal, marginalized identity, and I'm saying something needs to change. I'm not happy with the status quo. And you demand that I make explicit my moral reasoning behind what I'm saying. I'd say, fuck you. Go. You can go fuck yourself. I'm going to do what I'm going to do to free myself and my community. And you can take your propositional language and your representational bullshit. And you can <laughs> go fuck yourself all the way to Cambridge. I don't give a shit. Okay. Isn't that, can I just say that? Like, that's a question. I'm okay, not saying I'm that not, to you. I'm not talking about <laughs> activist movements or. But you are, oh, so activists do not enact morality. Morality only takes place in theoretical discourse. No, hold on, hold on. No, hold no, on. no, no, no. I, I think I think that I think you're really straw manning there, Eric. Because quite frankly, I'm clearly not talking about an I'm activist. I'm asking on the a street. question. I'm not making any okay. claims. Yeah, but no, we're talking about critical <laughs> theorists who are engaged in a philosophical. No, critical people never make claims, right? They just, they just uh, and critique. if you're a critical theorist who's engaging in a philosophical enterprise, first and foremost then naturally the expectation is going to be that other philosophers and people engaged in theory are going to criticize you and ask you to be explicit about the presuppositions underpinning your own work. Okay, That's a very the point is thing. to change the world. Philosophers have interpreted oh. it. The point is to change okay, the world. Enough, That's but, in critical theory. We're okay. not engaged. When we're talking okay, about but, morality but, and ethics, we're talking about behavior, right? What does ethics mean? It means how to live well, not how to think well, not how to... <laughs> Now, how to philosophize in a white tower? We don't need to. Okay, but Eric, if your only ambition active. is to change the world, you shouldn't do theory. You know, I worked for fucking an yeah. NGO for a long time. I fucking went door to door. Sorry, I should saying, have no theory behind what I do. I should just no, run out my door could, and start smashing my neighbor's I'm windows. Say, if, I said, if you do, if you are engaging in a theory and you're offering a philosophical argument for your position, as one does if you're a critical theorist, then you're opening yourself to being judged on the basis of whether or not. Your philosophy rests on certain presuppositions, and you can be asked to held, be held accountable on that basis. If I'm an activist who basically just says, so You're I'm positing here, a on, metaphysical can, can gap please? between Kay. theory and practice. Everybody That's what stop. You're, doing. you're reifying the distinction between theory Volume and practice, down. And I don't accept it. No, I think it's. A, I think I'm cutting all this off in the audio. Everyone's been cut off. Victor. Okay, thank you. Talk about authoritarian. I would say that, Eric, I. I do not think that Matt, I think you're being a bit straw manny there. I don't think that the claim here is that um, 
you know. I asked a question. The, the, I didn't no, no, straw man. I didn't okay, make any okay. claims. I just okay, said, fine. The isn't implicit, this the, case? the implicit. Okay, the question. Okay, and well, you're then, saying no, and I respect. Well that. then, well then, okay, yeah, okay. Well then, the answer would obviously be no. I think because it's not about like forcing anybody. I think that well, the, a proper response to your question then would be no, no. It's not about forcing people to do certain things. It's about saying that if they're going to do theory, if they're going to write like political theory then it's okay to point out to be like, actually, there's a lot of implicit moral claims here. And like your argument's kind of weak because of that, because you're not actually saying. So it's about pointing to, it's about criticizing a, a type of, a form of theory, a form of argumentation. It's not about like saying you have to do something else, but it's more about me being like, well, I'm not going to let you hide behind. You're like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to like make these claims because they're contaminated with like whatever Western rationalism, like, no, no, but like, let's get away from that. Like, what are the underlying claims behind your, your crypto normative statements? And let's get, it's about being open to that criticism. That's all. It's not about yeah. forcing people to do something. If you want, keep doing your shitty, like unstated, like, you know, theories that don't have like, like, like <laughs> transparently, uh, that, that's yeah, obviously, I'm fired. being, uh, yeah, like, no, no, I'm, not, you, not you, I'm, I mean, I'm not, claiming you guys are saying that theory and practice are miles away from each other and i'm saying in critical theory is about praxis about the way that theory leads to practice that you cannot do without thinking and you cannot think without leading well i agree to with we're saying that there's two there's a difference in di the things that different people do which is a really common sense idea i'm not going to go talk to martin luther king and be like sorry i'm okay you know we really have to unpack why liberation is important before we actually try to engage in these liberation movements so let's sit down and let's theorize on this no you know he's an activist and that's what he does if you're dr cornell west though and you lay out a tract saying these are the philosophical justifications for that the expectation is a little bit different because now you're making an argument to a theoretical audience and you can be held accountable on that basis i happen to agree with cornell west and i happen to agree with mlk but they're doing different things, right? So if you're a post-colonial theorist uh, who's making arguments that based on implicit normative assumptions, I don't think there's anything wrong or authoritarian with saying there's implicit moral assumptions here. I want you to be clear about that, right? Uh, if you're a post-colonial activist uh, in a tyrannical country, then you don't and you don't have time for that, then that's fine. You know, nobody in their right mind is going to be coming and picking on you, being like, you know, fucking. Before you blow up that prison uh, or go attack that military depot, you know, we really have to settle these philosophical issues. Well, Matt, you're still just drawing a huge distinction between these two and saying, like, this is the job of all these people. You're telling yeah. them how to write still. He's an activist as if he didn't yeah, but that's ever what, but say anything. Isn't this super basic, though? That's what we do, Pills. <laughs> if we're not going to sit there and say your argument has problems with it, this is how I think your argument can be better. Then there's really no point in doing theory. Right? No, you that's know? the way that you do okay, theory. Well, but hold on, but, but, but didn't we all talk on the grad school episode, right, about like the being open to critique and like the process of getting your work yeah. read by by other people? And like, like, are you saying that like you know if your supervisor or someone or like some some person is like, well, I think that claim like there's an implicit claim here. Like, are you just gonna be like, well, that's just the way I do theory. So like, I'm not gonna. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't no, know. Like, I mean, those are like, two well, different scenarios. When you're I mean, in, when you're in a discussion like the one we're in now then I will defend my premises in a different way than if I were writing a book on it and I won't write a book on it. But if I were to, I wouldn't want to be like, oh, by the way, to all the Matt McManuses out here, here's my four claims and I'm going to put in a propositional logic okay. uh, so well, I can lead to the conclusion. To. 
I would never want to write like that. But he's expecting that that be said. I don't think he's. Like you have to also. He said Foucault has to give his ethical reasons before giving a critique. Not not premise one, premise two. Not not that. Just clear. Just just like uh, what's the. I am pretty open to the critique that I'm not separating theory from practice enough. I'm not separating intellectual activity from activist activity. But I just disagree with that. I think theory should be geared towards action. And that's the point. That's how it cashes out. If we sit around arguing about morality forever, then we never get each other. We never get anywhere. And that's why people think moral theory is not really worth the time people are putting into it because it's a careerist thing, right? We write books, we publish articles, we try to climb the ranks and we try to get a good job and that's fine, but it doesn't really get to the core of what ethics is all about, which is again, living well. Okay, not, but you could not say about the same thinking. About, you could say the same about any theoretical activity then. I mean, I could sit there and say, Of course why? I would. If someone came up to me and said evolution, I would say, what the fuck is your evidence? Did you go out into the world and look at it? Yes, he did. Darwin sailed around the fucking world okay, then, and did everything that needed to be done okay, to but then come what's up your, with this theory. Then what's the argument though, Eric? I mean, if your argument is we shouldn't just be sitting here theorizing all day, we should go out and change the world. That applies to every kind of theory. You know, you could sit there and say to Foucault, stop writing these goddamn books about prison. Uh, actually go out there and advocate for prison reform. You know, don't fucking be dropping acid uh, and then decide to write, you know, your history of sexuality in, you know, an Arizona desert. You know, go <laughs> out there and start fucking trying to change the San Francisco sex scene. You know, this apply if your attitude is kind of an anti-theorist one. You know, it's, we all feel like that sometimes. I mean, I'm I don't not trying to be us, anti-intellectual about yeah, it. I, I don't but... think any of us... Can would deny that we sometimes think like this is all just I mean, pointless. Let's move the on. Gramscian the Gramscian idea of the organic intellectual is somebody who goes out to the margins and advocates for them and uses their powers to change the world, and that's the I point. Feel- yeah, right? and, I, and I think that we should do that. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing here. But it's just to go back to pills. But going around point- demanding people say accusing people of making normative claims and telling them that they should make their premises more explicit is a certain view a of how. Yeah, it's a yeah, certain it's a critique. critique, and I'm open to it. Yeah, I don't separate theory from practice quite so much, but I disagree with that critique. I think it is based on a certain moral well, view of moral theory that I just does not jive well, with what I do. So, Pills, uh, I was thinking maybe because I heard um, either Eric or Matt say something about like you know I think all of us like care about, and I feel like no, or all of us occasionally think like what's the point of what we're doing here. And I just, and I'm thinking about, and I'm thinking about pills as probably being the one who, who most often thinks like this is all uh, pointless because I saw you on um, Epoch's uh, stream and I know you were making some interesting claims about politics there. I don't know. I feel like they're relevant to what we're talking about. Maybe I'm putting you too much on the spot here, but you were making some claims about like that in some ways, like this kind of action of like going, going out and, and, you know, doing anything is kind of pointless. Like you have to, you have to like live your politics in a certain way. I don't know. You no, don't want to answer, the, you don't have I, to, I was but. making a very simple point there, and I can make it again, is that the things that you have power over, this is back to an earlier point that we Matt and I were debating over, the things that you have power over are not what other people do and how other people write and how they should write. That The, the only thing you have power over is your immediate relationships and then what you create. So don't criticize unless you're creating. Matt, I know you are a creator. You're busy at all at all hours of the day making stuff. But I, I get 
just like Eric is getting antagonized by this, I get really antagonized by other people telling other people how they should be writing. And I know that's not ultimately what we're trying to do. You're saying, I want this to be clear. The whole doctrine could be clearer and then we'd all be in a better place. But I think that's a, a kind of a, an obnoxious articulation of what you're hoping okay, well, to get at. Let me be clear. Because okay. look, ultimately, I don't know it's not a belief. It's not right belief that changes the world. It's not your orthodoxy. And it's not even the best ideas are the most clearly stated beliefs that change anything. It's only power that has ever changed anything. And you can rearrange your ideas into the best configuration on the sinking ship, but ultimately that's your aesthetic decision. I don't know why you two thought I was directing this at you. No, you directed it at Foucault, which is even worse because he's way smarter than us. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> it. That, that's why I chose these people, right? Foucault and Marx and all that stuff, right? Like, I, I had no idea that you two would take this so personally, right? And it's not like I fucking th sit there. And I don't think take much shit personally, man. Okay. Well, I'm you just know, saying being antagonized. It's different okay. than taking being it personally. Being antagonized. Sure. Let, let me put it that way. If, <laughs> if we need to be like male about this, we can. You know, we don't have feelings. You know, we have antagonism. <laughs> you know, but look, let, let me just put it this way. I love Foucault and Marx, right? I think they're brilliant thinkers. They offer incredible descriptions of power, capital, you know, you name it. And I completely agree with Eric that these are vital theoretical enterprises to engage in, right? My critique is a pretty modest one in some ways. It's just like, look, if they're, are normative reasons why we should be engaged in critique or description, capital N normative to use Eric's like kind of term, then let's just be clear about that and that's helpful. I'm not saying everyone's gonna be able to do it because none of us have a million years. I'm just saying it's useful when that's done. And it's worth noting that Foucault did do that at the end of the life, his life in Care of the Self and other books, right? He's talking about this. And you got to criticize for being a liberal or something. <laughs> well, you know, he talks about Kant and he says, you know, I was committed to this ethics of self-creation a la Nietzsche, right? This is why I talked about some kinds of power being good and some productive and some being bad because, you know, people should be empowered to engage in this Nietzschean self-creation. I find that pretty inspiring, right? Uh, and knowing that helps it become, makes it the rest of his work and what he's aiming for clearer to me, right? Just as, you know, when I sit there, I'm like, okay, Marx is committed to this idea of uh, the uh, <laughs> universal freedom and equality for all. That's his kind of end goal. That makes things clear for me as well. You know, and then I can also evaluate it more easily. That's all I'm getting at. Yeah, I would just say don't don't mistake my passionately delivering my points as me being upset. I'm just saying when we are talking about morality, we're also talking about people who are in like current situations where there are massive imbalances in power relations and they do feel that there's a certain urgency. Yeah, and the yeah. idea of like slowing down all the time when I when I say like you know go fuck yourself take your argument back to Harvard or whatever I'm saying Oxford. that there there are certain Oxford. yeah the, <laughs> there are certain situations that have a, a certain amount of urgency and the idea of always like trying to translate the world into theoretical terms or into propositional explicit terms whatever you want to call them is kind of going against that urgency and we need okay. to realize that there are people suffering now it's not that's not a controversial point mm -hmm. and that morality does have a certain urgency to it and i think that the sorts of logical arguments that maybe like consequentialist utilitarians make do not have a certain urgency to them. They have a kind of air of like, we have all the time in the world to figure this out. So let's get oh, okay. down to the nuts and bolts of it. And, and, and then that sort of says, okay, well then we can separate theory from practice in a big way. And I think the acad academia does do that. But 
I, what I just wanted to say was that we, we shouldn't do that, that there is an internal relation between theory and practice. There's a, a mutual relationship. There's a back and forth relationship. One feeds into the other. And I just wanted to play a little bit of devil's advocate with those ideas about, yeah, about good. making good stuff. Making explicit your underlying moral arguments. I, I mean, if you want to sh- take a shit on like the pretension of analytic moral philosophers, if that's all you wanted to do, I I'm would always happily happy do to. that. I yeah, would love do to do that because yeah, I course. agree with you, right? Like I told you, I referenced Derek Parfit charitably. This guy had 23 years to write this three-volume book. 23 years where he did nothing else but work on it. And a lot of it's dense and opaque, and I have really no use for it in my practical life. And the whole time I was reading it, I had exactly the same thoughts you did, right? Like, this is all very theoretically interesting. I'm not sure how this is actually going to help me solve a single fucking real moral dilemma. That's me and my yeah, yeah. mood. And there is definitely a privilege in being able to engage in that kind of moral philosophizing, as there is in any kind of theoretical activity, right? So if you want to talk about that, sure, we can fucking go discuss it till the fucking cows come home, right? But I mean, I, th- I just think that that gets at the heart of what we're talking about. When we're talking about moral reasoning, morality, and ethics... And what's right and what's wrong. I mean, I think that should be at the center of the conversation and not the other things we're talking about, which is, you know, how do we separate theory from practice? How do we make proper moral arguments that are logically consistent? I think those are important because I do believe there's a certain logic to everything that happens. But I mean, to sit down and say we need to figure this out before we can act upon it is also problematic. All right, now we are getting to, right. we are shifting gears to why we can't make moral arguments. And the reason, of course, is the greatest critic of all time of moralizing Mr. Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> this will be a little bit of a follow-up of our episode on Nietzsche, but we never got into the fact-value distinction um, in there. So... The problem with making normative claims, generally speaking, anytime after Nietzsche is he says all of this is making value distinctions. These value distinctions come from a particular place in history where someone is making a power play, more or less. So anytime you make a moral argument, there's a first of all, it's unchained from the sun, as he says. So it's just an, almost an arbitrary thing to say. Um, and probably implicit in there, you're making a power play. And the, the Nietzscheanization of the left, or vice versa, which is a chapter from an Alan Bloom book. But the, I think a reason that the lot, a lot of the critical theory left does not appeal to moral arguments and instead appeals to arguments of power is because of this uptake of Nietzsche that you can't really say what's right and wrong, or at least you can't make arguments on those grounds. So I want to throw it out there. If everything is value, if everything is the thing that you give it, like humans, people, societies give things value, they don't have intrinsic value or a historical value. If everything is part of history, then how do you go on to make moral claims and appeal to the fact that you think that other people should be making moral claims? I'm going to jump in there. is it right for yeah. me to make a vodka soda right now? Is it right for me to ask for time for that? You don't. You shouldn't <laughs> be asking. You should be expressing your will to power. I by... will make a vodka soda right now, and I'll okay. be back in five minutes. And you can all five go minutes. fuck yourself. How long That's does it take time. to pour a soda? 
I'll be back in two you minutes. Can, <laughs> two minutes. All right, I'm going to time you. Okay, well, I can... Can you express I can, that I can in try dance? To answer, like, or I start getting at an answer to that by sort of saying that, I mean... I guess I'm also skeptical. I kind of think that Nietzsche is also a little bit of a crypto-normativist in, cer- in a certain sense, in the sense that I think there is a lot. I mean, I guess he's inconsistent uh, depending on what you read by him. But, I mean, he does talk about health, right, and like the, like the health and, or sickness of the human being. And presumably that has normative implications. It's like if, if, an, if an animal is sick or not. Nietzsche is not... A crypto normativist in that sense, though, he's an express normativist. He says that health health is the value of anything that's alive. Right. Okay. Okay. So then, so then he's not a crypto normativist, I suppose. Um, the question is if he's a crypto moralist, because I I've heard that claim before, and I kind of dis- I adamantly disagree with it. Right. I mean, I I think I think what 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 happened after Nietzsche was was something that Matt and Victor have pointed out is that there's no more universal claims about ethics or morality that everything is particular i mean that's that's one of the ways to sort of defend yourself from i don't know i i guess getting on the wrong side of what nietzsche was saying is that you have to you have to particularize everything to certain so when when matt asks for instance whether it's okay right now to make a vodka soda, that's a very different thing from was it okay half an hour ago to make one? Was it okay in an hour? If I were in Zimbabwe, it would have been okay. Fucking, I'm going to make one like, too. Goddamn. Everything <laughs> becomes a kind of particularistic claim afterwards. Wait, 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 one second. Uh, and so, smear yeah, now, make sure if you're listening, you send the check, okay? Ew. Plastic pills. No, Victor's, yeah. Victor's drinking real vodka. Oh my God. That that looks like a Russian one. To our listeners, we don't usually record on Friday, so we're not always drinking when we do the podcast. But as it is Friday at five forty-five, I think this is uh, about to get a little bit more spicy. Yeah, I'm gonna go get one too. <laughs> is it is yeah. it right? I don't give a shit. I can tell you from having tried mine now that it is right. It's both right and good and aesthetically sublime. So. Mm. Very nice and refreshing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my my approach is is that yeah, like it, it it leads to a kind of particularism, because universalistic claims are actually just metaphors. That's what like, and they're they're linguistically oriented, right? Truth is a mobile army of metaphors, metonymies, and anthropomorphisms. I think I think part of that is that we are the creature who's imagined that we've built this edifice of knowledge, but really it's built on shifting sands. And therefore it's gonna be it's gonna be different. It's built the the foundations itself are rotten. And we're just fooling ourselves if we think these are universal moral claims. And so we have to back up and say, okay, what do we actually mean by universal? Do we mean like all places, all times? Do we mean like a priori, like necessary, universal, logically sound? Or do we mean just something more like, like in general? That's what universal tends to mean for right, me. Like Prospero says, you know, uh, we are such stuff as dreams are made of. You know. But then the Nietzschean claim here is a little bit more than there are no universals. It's saying that the posit, the original position that appeals to universals, is a position of not being able to create, of trying to make people play by your rules so that you have a better chance at the game. So in that sense, it's a power play. Well, I'm going to give my little spiel on this and say, uh, actually, and I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear this, that I don't think there is actually a definitive way uh, 
rebutting the Nietzschean claim, right? Um, if you tend to believe that morality needs to be grounded in something like ontology, uh, you know, that mores come from a description of how things are and not from human subjectivity with all the kind of difficulties that that's entailed, then you're probably not going to end up getting that, right? Uh, I think that's, you know, at the core of his kind of insight uh, and the core of the kind of modernist insight about normativity more generally, right? Uh, the only argument that I can claim for the existence of morality uh, is one that's put forward by Ronald Dworkin. Uh, he has a very good paper called A Truth and Objectivity, You Better Believe It, uh, where he kind of makes this argument, which is that uh, we can be external skeptics and internal skeptics, right? External skeptics uh, basically hold that we can't ground our moral views uh, about in any kind of external truth uh, to human subjectivity, right? Uh, and he says, there's really no way of rebutting this person, right? You need to have a very fully worked out ontological theory that grounds morality. We're not going to get that, right? Uh, but he says that if you, it's actually very difficult to be what he calls an internal skeptic, which is basically to act as if you do hold that certain things are true morally, right? And I think that he's right about this. I mean, if you think about the kind of way we make value judgments about our life, the vocabularies that we use, even anthropologically, uh, most of them express at least a kind of certainty that there's something that's worthwhile about human life and existence, uh, and it's our job to figure out what that is. I've never heard that argument before, but I'm actually extremely sympathetic to it, which is I don't it's a, it, don't appeal to the ahistorical because that's a stupid mm -hmm. thing to do. But yeah. if you're talking to someone and they just say, I'm going to do what I want because there is what, what you're calling the internal. If you're, they're saying there is no ahistorical, so I'm going to do whatever I want, then that person's a fucking asshole and yeah. they're not going to have any friends and you're not going to want to talk to them. So well, not just that. Bernard Williams wrote a really good book called Morality, where he actually, uh, he wrote, it was a really, opened with a really interesting essay where he says, could we actually be a consistent nihilist, like hold to nihilism the whole way through? And the conclusion he reached is you could, you know, you could be a consistent nihilist and live by those principles, uh, but it would be a really warped, fucked up individual that would bear no individual, like resemblance to anything that we call a human being. Uh, because this is somebody who really could not complain about anything. Could it make any value judgments? Probably couldn't even make aesthetic judgments, yeah. really, about things. We were talking about this while you were getting a drink, Matt, but Nietzsche is certainly not anti-normative, but yeah. he's definitely yeah. a, he's an amoralist, and I think a consistent amoralist on this point. Yeah, that's awesome. But you can't act that way. So I was expecting this to be, I don't know, do, do you think we should explain well, the fact-value distinction for the listeners well, a little more? Well I, was, well, I actually was curious, What's how do you distinguish between being a moralist versus a normativist? I mean, I don't think you do. I, I, I distinguished it earlier by saying, like, normativism is, is much broader than just morality. It goes into everything. Whenever you talk about what we should do, how we should do something, you're making normative claims. Like I said, even the scientific method, when we're talking about how we should best investigate okay. natural phenomena. No, we're, I, to we're I totally talking I normatively because it's how, how we should best do that. So when you're a moralist is just a more specific version of normativity. Yes, but but then how but how is the claim that like a human being healthy uh, is is better than not? How is that not a moral claim? It is a, it, it could be a moral claim in a way. Well, because you're saying because you're saying Nietzsche's like fixation right on like the health of of of, of like the human um of the hum of the human uh, spirit of like the human whatever it's called like the um uh I'm I'm like no it is will just it's will. But but Okay, sure, but like, so how is that not a moral? How is that not a moral claim? There's no um, in injunction as to what your behavior should be. 
Wait, so all... I don't know about that. Also, he's not... Is he saying something as the difference between right and wrong? Like, when we're talking about morality, that's specifically well, that, what we're talking about. And if it, if you say it's implicit, then okay, there's moralism there. But, it, but if he's not making it explicit, then you can't really say that he's made a moral claim because when i'm when i'm thinking about mo like more moral moral philosophy like i'm thinking about like being able to evaluate a certain state of affairs to be like better than other ones or whatever and it's like and then you make like sort of decisions about how you should act based on like your judgment about what the better or worse states of affairs and it seems to me nietzsche is saying that like a state where the the human spirit is healthiest or whatever is like is like a better state of affairs therefore that seems like a moral claim to me yeah, because more like I, I just have this one thing is because what what Nietzsche like what Nietzsche does differently is if you go back and read like moral philosophy, which is all philosophy was, there was two kinds of philosophy, moral philosophy and natural philosophy. And when you're doing moral philosophy or if you even look at how the Greeks did it, right, they had a whole cosmology. Like usually there's a kind of metaphysical nucleus, whether it's Plato's distinction between like the realm of ideas and the realm of things that reflect those ideas or whether it's Aristotle's, you know, material form substance distinctions, like around that is built a cosmology. And then the human world is assumed to be a microcosm within that macrocosm. And to say, well, if there's an order built into the universe, then we can actually build a human society that reflects that order. And that's the moral claim behind it, is that human society needs to reflect the order of the universe. And what Nietzsche is doing is bringing it more to a radical sort of individualist perspective, is to say that actually the health of your body and the health of your mind is what's important. What's not important is this grand system moral building where we say society has to reflect some kind of Im implicit cosmological order or some kind of nucleus of metaphysical distinctions. It's all about the person and what other people think or how society is organized, be damned. And that, like that's the that's a shift to a different kind of morality. It's not but, but saying it's not moral. I do think he's making aesthetic judgments, and this is where I think the shift comes in, right? Uh, so Nietzsche, I agree, does sometimes sound a bit like a relativist and even a nihilist, right? But uh, at his head of most strident, he hates uh, nihilism. Talks, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but at his most stridently anti-nihilist, that was exactly what I was going to say. Uh, he does tend to say that we still awake and will make value judgments. There's no getting away from that, right? And I think this relates back to what I was talking about with the impossibility of internal skepticism, right? He's saying, you know, there's no way we're going to not make value judgments. But we should recognize, at least to his mind, that these are aesthetic judgments, not moral in the sense that, say, Eric was talking about morality, uh, in the sense that they flow from some kind of deep metaphysical truths about the way that the world should be. Aesthetic judgments are what he calls, you know, judgments of the nose, you know? Uh, you happen to like slave morality. I happen to like, you know, an aristocratic morality focused on the will to power and the creation of the Ubermensch, right? Uh, and he says that's all that we can really understand value judgments to be. It's these aesthetic evaluations. And I think a lot of people picked up on that. I mean, if you look at uh, somebody like Wittgenstein in the Tractatus Philosophical, Tractatus Logical Philosophicus, he says, you know, ethics and aesthetics are one and the same. Uh, you can't really disconnect them. Yeah, even Peirce says ethics, aesthetics, and logic are all just different versions of normative science, where we study normativity. Victor's not satisfied with his argument. Well, no, I just, I, I, I wanted to try to clear, like, put it into slightly different terms, because I guess what I'm wondering is, 
is it really like is Nietzsche just rebelling against or or undermining the the kind of exp- like the thickness of the kind of explanation that we have for moral truths? So like he's saying like, in fact, we don't need this kind of like thick cosmological explanation of of uh, to, to ground morality. And like, I fully agree with that. And I think that like, so would someone like John Stuart Mill. And so would like a lot of the people that Matt and I like in like the liberal tradition, like they're all, I think, similar in that sense. And that they're, they're making the same, a similar kind of moral argument as Nietzsche in, in their rejection. That's actually one of my frustrations that I was kind of getting at earlier with critical I just want to point out that like, you use thick oh, oh. ground and frustration all of <laughs> all right. term, And I'm Get not your making fucking a head about together, it. together, you sick fuck. You <laughs> oh, sick Jesus, fuck. you metaphysical <laughs> right, dildo. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I think you're right. I, I, I don't think I think that you're kind of reading Nietzsche at least differently than I am both Matt and Victor there, because he's not saying well, let's do either or let's no, slave morality and master morality are equivalent. He's saying mm-hmm. slave morality is the only force that can defeat master morality, whatever. But master morality in line with the will to power is the way that life works. And there's nothing worse for him than a condemnation of life by the living. So the like it would be insane to think that a living creature could not want its own health. Only priests do that. Priests are like the tumor of everything that exists because they're the only thing that denies their own life. So in that sense, he's normative. But I would say, like, I guess my understanding of morality is much less than what's good. I think I would call that ethics. I always think of morality in terms of power. Like, how do you tell other people what they should and should well, not you're, you're right. do? How do you, de- how do you determine right. actions? Uh, ethics is the doing one. Moral is the right and wrong one. But I think, but I also think that's the, the reason there's a confusion here is because I think like the Anglo-American tradition of philosophy did s- sort of co-opt that word mor- morality to include moral philosophy to include like this much broader definition of just like normativity. So like, I don't think, so I think you're right that like in the older, and I remember even when I was, you know, an undergrad and wasn't familiar with philosophy yet, I remember that word getting thrown around and I was thinking about it in the way that probably Nietzsche thought about it as like this kind of like imposition of power, like telling you like what you're supposed to follow, like this more that you're supposed to like follow and, and not question when really like moral philosophy yeah. means like any sort of study of like of like being able to evaluate something as being better or worse or like prescriptive or not. It's like all of that is included in moral philosophy, I think. That, thanks a lot, Victor, because I think that's really yeah, Anything to do with thoughts, reasoning, anything to do with thought, reasoning, human beings living together, that's all moral philosophy. If you're going out and doing experiments or reasoning about the way the world is, then it's natural philosophy, which is what we call science now. And we make a huge distinction today between science and philosophy, which is moral in brackets, because we think everything that has to do with human beings and the humanities and the social sciences is all moral philosophy by 18th century standards and and before that. Yeah. Can I can I just quickly look before Matt? You fucking interrupted me before with your dick jokes earlier, and I didn't even get to finish my thought. <laughs> I didn't make a joke. The joke you, was the absence of the joke. Though. You liar! You fuck! You're just like the crypto normativist with your crypto joke that was obviously underlying there that you refused to state. The present absence of there. the joke was what made it funny. The absence <laughs> of the joke was. What and made to it. be fair, it was a synthetic dick joke, not an actual dick joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Hey, crypto, crypto's yeah. good. All right. Then they say uh, a crypto semiotician is is good for us to discover. If we find somebody who's a crypto moralist, we should uh, we should pay attention. This is why I say. should say I'm a little bit surprised that you two are angry about this claim that we should make explicit our moral judgments because one of the people I think that's not a claim. Is, that's a moral determination. Okay, okay, just I also finish. still haven't even been able to make my point here. Fine, make your point, and then I'll. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, go, go now. <laughs> no, so like all I want to say before about like is my frustration. I think with, is with this this idea. What right when we were distinguishing between like the level of explanation that you accept for a moral claim, right, as being as Eric put it, linked to a cosmology. I sometimes think that that's like the critical theory tradition is still stuck in this idea that like the Anglo-American or whatever or more rationalist school yeah. is still trying to ground their morality in something like that. And I think that's the thing that I mostly get frustrated about is like the distortion and kind of straw manning that, oh, like all these analytic or whatever, they're trying to ground it in this like broader. And it's like, no, that's like not what they're doing at all. Uh, they're doing something that's like at a similar level of modesty as like Nietzsche saying that like the health of the human spirit. I mean, I'm not trying to equate them, but I'm just saying that like the level of explanation that is accepted for saying that one state of affairs is better than another is is not that much is not some grand cosmology like that 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 sort of Western like rationalist hubris has been over for a long time, and I feel like the critical tradition pretends that it's still so active when I don't think it is. Well, I'm saying that Nietzsche is a vitalist. I don't think critical theorists are generally speaking vitalists or ever. Yeah, that, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, That's and true. I did just want to say, I think that you're absolutely right about that, Victor. I mean, if you think about it, the kind of surge of interest in meta-ethics that's appeared over the last 70 years demonstrates that there's a huge amount of anxiety about what can ground moral claims or normative, big N normativity uh, more generally, right? Uh, and I mean, there's a million different kind of meta-ethical schools out there, everything from the one I hold to, which is a quasi-cognitive uh, quasi moral realism, right, to naturalism and whatever. But I, I did just want to say that one of the things that I think is odd about this more general structure is there was a little bit of pushback against uh, me and Victor arguing that we should make explicit the kind of normative claims that underpin our descriptive work, right? Let's just like pause on that for a second. You should get hit with a dildo. But mm -hmm. like, always. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that like Nietzsche was probably the paramount critic uh, in this respect because I mean, he saw crypto normativity to use Victor's terms everywhere. I remember he has this like lampooning uh, caricature of Kant's metaphysics, where he essentially says, all this is is a bunch of garbage that Kant invented so he could get back to the categorical imperative. That's what this is all about. And we should realize that and be overt about that. Um, because, you know, the reason why he wants to deny the world is in order to make Ray for faith. That's exactly <laughs> why what he said in the Critique of Pure Reason. I, right? I like when he just calls Kant old Kant. Yeah, old Kant. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, but speaking of crypto, he just said, Kant's a crypto Christian well, who just wanted to rationalize Christianity. Yeah, just replace God with reason. Yeah, but this is what I'm saying. You know, Nietzsche was pretty overt about that. He says, you know, let's make, you know, let's put all our cards at the table and say why it is that we want these things from the perspective of value. Uh, and he was pretty overt about that also, where he'd say things like, I'm making a value judgment also. It's an aesthetic value judgment. And it's a judgment that I think that the morality that we have right now, this kind of slave morality, that's the residue of Christianity is sick uh, and we should get rid of it and make way for our mass morality instead. I'm laying my cards out on the table and saying this is what we should do, which is what many moral philosophers and many other mm. natural philosophers for that reason, for that uh, in that respect, don't actually do. As long as you know that you're only making an aesthetic judgment based on what you prefer, Matt, there's no... 
There's no categorical imperative that everyone should write the way that you want them to write. There's no categorical imperative that'll say. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't. I can't. Um, I can't exactly respond to the whole Nietzsche part of what you're saying, but I can remain with the the normative thing and say, well, maybe we're not as far away from a cosmology as we think we are contra victor but not totally because we are away from that quite a bit who's we right now i well let's say okay who is this ju we? just me for now the royal so yeah. just me for now don't worry I i'm gonna say if, if if you are okay saying like if i give it to you that you can say okay i'm gonna demand not demand, but I'm going to request, request that you make explicit your normative assumptions that are behind your arguments that are so-called descriptive. Then I could also just as well say, well, can you please make explicit your ontological assumptions that are behind your morality? Because a lot sure, of, again, what utilitarianism and consequentialism has is, is it has a metaphysics. It has an epistemology built into it which is often the case is logical positivism yeah that yeah. that nothing exists except the physical world and the physical world is the thing we can find out about and that brings us back to the fact value distinction so only facts pertain to say what we were calling natural philosophy and values are subjective and that's what pertains to moral philosophy and great we have so many all these nice little clean binaries now but what i would say is that epistemological assumption that relates to ontology that says what exists and what doesn't exist what is physical and what we can touch and what we can confirm is true and what really just depends on what people think and how people deliberate and come to conclusions and arrange things that has an ontology built into it that is really consequential for our normative claims and what we think about morality, right? Like if we don't think that relations are real things, for example, if I don't think that the mother-son relationship is a real thing, if it's all in my head, for example, or the only way I can confirm it is looking at my genes, for example, then I can't make any moral claims based on that because that is an is relationship and not an ought relationship because then I have to say, well, how ought you treat your mother? Well, I can't base that on our genetics. But again, all of that is besides the point because it's an ontology that's built into the way I moralize. So really the cosmology leading to a morality approach that the ancient Greeks took is really just another version of what these utilitarian consequentialists are doing today by claiming that, well, logical positivism is the only real thing. And I disagree with them that only science can make positive claims. I can make positive moral claims as well. But in the end, I'm still a positivist and there's still a whole ontology built around that idea. And, it, and so the normativity is actually subordinate to that. So you should actually be asking people not to make their normative claims explicit, but to make their metaphysical mm. claims explicit. All right. So I just want to make it clear then that you're willing to grant our, me and Victor's kind of Nietzschean claim that you make obvious your value judgments. If we're willing to grant your Heideggerian claim that we make clear our ontological presupposition. Is that the exchange that you have on offer? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a bit of a chicken and egg situation with that. But yeah, sure. I, I like that. Okay, I, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it. I'll buy that deal. I, I buy that too. Well, yeah. Like, 
That's the thing, though. When we do make our moral, our normative premises explicit, we're in I mean, you're, you're right. I think we, he is we, right, yeah. We end frame, and we and we put them within an implicit ontological framework. And then how do we get outside of that ontological framework? Well, then we have to make our normative claims clear that lead us to hold those ontological claims valuable. And then, again, you just have an infinite regress. And then I have to make my ontological claims and my normative claims. And you just end up with an infinite regress. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic Victor, to that. Sorry. I I don't mean to interrupt. I'll let you finish your point, but uh, there was a lot of terminology in there. Can you just rearticulate what he said first? Yeah. So I think, I mean, okay, so this is how I'm hearing it, which is that like, if you're going to talk about, if you're going to make some sort of claim about like, what is a better or worse state of affairs to put like a normative claim very simply, like you have to maybe make some kind of metaphysical or ontological claim about like, and I guess to put it simply, like what is the human being, for example, like like what is the nature of the world or like what is the nature of what we can know? That's more of an epistemological claim, I suppose. But like the reason I'm sympathetic to it is because I think, and I don't know if I'll be able to explain this succinctly right now, but a lot of my own like sympathy for the kinds of sort of incomplete um, normative claims that I'm willing to make um, are based on like my ontology of like human fallibility as being like stuck in kind of incomplete knowledge but like we notice similarities in the ways um, that human beings are. And like a lot of that's informed by Lacanian psychoanalysis or like Merleau-Pontian phenomenology, like just the way that the situatedness of the human being, which leads us to, and I don't know if this is going to get too abstract, but leads us to sort of have contingent, like, so there's a, there's a, there's a structure that I think you can identify in Lacanian psychoanalysis or, or Merleau-Pontian phenomenology that, that is consistent across human beings that then gets filled in with, with content that is contingent. Um, but still, I think you can make, you can, you can use that platform to make certain kinds of normative claims, which I think Eric is saying that like, that it's, we should be talking about that, those kinds of like the ontological grounding, which is a difficult thing, but I think, I think he's right that it's, it's worth, it's worth clarifying. For me, it is so informed by, human fallibility, the incompleteness of knowledge, like, like our uncertainty. But I still think that that leads to, um, the possibility to make certain kinds of claims. I don't yeah. know if any of that made sense. I'm no, sorry. It does. I think this is exactly what Dworkin is arguing about when he thinks, uh, when he talks about external and internal skepticism, uh, you know, his kind of argument is that, look, we are never going to have a full blown ontological account of where our value judgments come from. Uh, that actually explains some kind of connection between the world that's external to us how it is that all those cosmologies operate, where morality comes from, et cetera. It's not going to happen, right? Uh, I think, though, that he fundamentally accepts the point made by uh, Kant, and I think in a much more vitriolic way, Nietzsche, that, look, you know, regardless of that fact, you know, the fact that we're wrapped in human subjectivity, which is inevitably partial, finite, uh, and we're going to make value judgments. So we should try to make sense of where those value judgments come from, and see if we can give them a little bit of a fine-tuning. Uh, now, there's a lot of argument about what that fine-tuning entails, but I think we can all agree that it's a useful enterprise to do that. Or if you want to be a critical theorist, to at least try to expose where it is that the value judgments uh, we happen to make are, to bring them to the surface so that we can more critically analyze them. Right? I think we'd all agree on that. Well, now we've gone all the way through the ontology of the Greeks, the moralism of the British slash enlightenment rationalists all the way through Nietzsche 
And the thing that we've determined at the end of the day is don't be an asshole. Is that, is that, the, is that the option? I was going to say exactly the same thing as my joke <laughs> at the end. Why the fuck did you know do that? I was going to say, like, the one moral truth is don't be an asshole. God damn it. Yeah. I mean, How I mean, Kant's morality is based on his distinction between a priori and a posteriori. And that's that's all you can say about it because duties have to be universal and necessary. And then the way you actually, like, practice those things they come out in very different ways but they're guided by that and that's that's Kant's epistemology whereas someone like uh i don't know one of our patrons probably wants to hear about um wants to hear about uh um uh, uh, levinas levinas makes ethics yeah the first thing like the first philosophy and then and then maybe like other kinds of philosophy follow that so it's kind of a reversal of kant but they did realize right away that kant had made a gap he made a gap between theory and practice pure reason and practical reason and he tried to sort of patch that up with the critique of judgment and a lot of people weren't convinced by that sort of thing and i, I don't even yeah, think kant was really satisfied with it in the end but it, it really well, I mean, can't never had a wife or anything. So was he really satisfied in any sense? You know what I mean? What are you saying that you need a wife to be happy? Well, I mean, having a sexual partner would be useful, <laughs> you know, for a certain. Wait, are you partner. saying that sexual partners are only good for their utility? OK, well, in 18th century, in 18th century Germany, you're the worst moralist I've ever heard. <laughs> In 18th century Germany, I'm pretty, I suppose that oh my God. in Konigsberg, uh, he would need a wife in order to engage in those kinds of activities. I heard he was a partier, though. He probably just got like a lot of, a lot of like side. Uh... Yeah, we got to say, not not just don't be an asshole, but also don't <laughs> be a priest. There oh, we yeah, go. I like that. I like that tweet like today, that. Pills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you expand on that tweet? Uh, like, I, I was, yeah. I, I liked it a lot, though. I pre- I agree with that. I'm like with the, with what I think the like um sentiment is behind it. But maybe you could say more about that. Yeah, we're gonna do that on a different day. Uh, I was, yeah. I, I was, I was reading Zarathustra, the so. priesthood. Well, I think, I mean, I, like you know, just on that, like priest. I think maybe some of the things that I find. Uh, I mean, I like I find the people the most unpalatable when I think they're being kind of priests. And I think there's lots of different examples on lots of different sides. That's why you don't like daddy. Yeah, I don't like daddy. Daddy is a priest for sure. For daddy sure. Daddy is the biggest priest right now. Yeah, they had a lot of names. The injunctives, the gatekeepers, grammarians. Basically anyone who purports to speak on behalf of the universal in order to blood sacrifice particularity. I mean, I mean a priesthood... Yeah, like a small group of people who who just dictate what's good. And what's I mean, not. cancel culture. Some of it is priestly, which is a good move. I mean, it's a, it's a good move. I, I, yeah, Nietzsche had respect for it. He said that the how, how the hell did Judeo Christianity conquer the greatest civilizations that have ever existed? I thought this went well, though. I mean, it was definitely spicy. I had fun. Eric like s- screaming on behalf of like the third world, and me like pounding my fist, and like Victor being like, "Can I say something? Can I?" Are you say trying something? to get my fucking word in with you? You're you're a fucking tyrant over there, Matt. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Oh shit. Well, I, I was just <laughs> like, this is the guy that makes the most moral arguments, and he's just very immoral. Based on the I amount of be. space he takes up. <laughs> Guys, we're doing Gramsci in a few days. It looks like that. It looks that way. He's winning the vote for our our patron episode. But for now, oh, is that on Monday? we need to escape our apartments for the first time in months. Yeah, we're going to finally get to see. Eric, are you coming? Uh, that's yet to be determined. 
restrictions have been lifted. So we're gonna go uh, visit the green space. So from me, Pills. <laughs> yeah, later listeners. I live on University <laughs> Avenue. See you later, guys. We're gonna say right. thanks for all coming out. Be good, everybody. Don't be an That's asshole true. and don't right. be a priest. Amen. Adios. Amen to not being a priest. Okay.